We'll be in Luke chapter 10, and we will be reading this morning in verses 25 through 37. And this is a passage that is going to be familiar to you because this passage records Jesus telling the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so that's what I want to look at this morning is the Good Samaritan. And what we're going to do is we're going to study this in light of the question that prompted Jesus to tell the story of the Good Samaritan. And this is, this is going to mean something to us. So Luke chapter 10, verse 25, the Bible says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, And gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. You put that question at the beginning of this, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? The two great commandments that are listed, Jesus' exhortation to go and do those two commandments, and then the lawyer saying, but who is my neighbor? That gives a a deeper understanding of what Jesus is teaching us here in the story of the Good Samaritan. In Luke chapter 10, the disciples have returned from their mission trips. He has sent them out, sent out 72 people, two by two, into the villages, to prepare the people for his arrival, to prepare the people to receive Jesus for his coming, for his preaching of the gospel of the kingdom, for his ministry. And they've come back and they're excited and they're telling Jesus what all's happened and this prompts Jesus to begin to teach. And he's teaching the disciples because that's what Jesus does. He's always teaching. He's in heaven right now at the right hand of the throne of God. And you know what? He's still teaching us. We're still learning through the spirit and through the study of his scriptures. And as Jesus is teaching, a lawyer stands up. Now, when we think about this lawyer, we shouldn't think of him in terms of like lawyers we have today, okay? This is not a prosecutor. He's not a defense attorney. But like lawyers today, these guys did some of the same things in terms of trying to twist words to make them mean things. I can't say twist. My tongue got twisted on twist. Go figure. He, uh, they, 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 you know, could it be, could this word mean, does this word have to mean, do y'all realize 
the law that we follow in the United States, how little of it is actually written down. The, the meaning of the law and how the law is, is enforced is not actually written by Congress, but by decades of court rulings, court definitions of terms. It's, it's called the common law. And there are only three countries in the world that operate under a common law system. Great Britain, this will make sense when I tell you the other two, the United States, of oh, four, because I think Canada is under a common law system and Australia is under a common law system. Basically, Congress passes a generic bill that says this is what we want to have happen, and the executive branch and the judicial branch figure out what that actually means and how to actually enforce it. And so you have lawyers that go and they argue before the court what this word means and what that word means, and that's what this lawyer's doing. Who is my neighbor? Now this lawyer, he stands up in the midst of Jesus' teaching, and he asks a question. And the question is, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Mm -hmm. Now this lawyer has studied the Old Testament in great detail. And he asked the question, and you get the idea that maybe Jesus has addressed this issue before. What to do to inherit eternal life, right? This lawyer stands up and asks the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This seems like a pretty simple question, doesn't it? I mean, if somebody were to stand up in here and ask me how to be saved, do you expect that I'd be able to tell them? Would you be able to tell them how to be saved? This is a very simple question. Why is this lawyer a man who has studied the Old Testament who's been around, you're assuming he's been around Jesus a little bit. Why is he asking Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Is this man trying to be saved right now? No. The Bible tells us, just in case we're confused, the Bible tells us he's putting Jesus to the test. Amen. Let me tell you something. If a lawyer ever asks you a question, mm -hmm. and it's a simple answer, mm -hmm. it's a simple yes-no answer. It's a basic question. It is truth. How could this possibly be used against me? It is what it is. <laughs> he's setting you up. He is setting you up because he's going to get your answer from that question. He's going to ask a follow-up, and he's going to lead you into a logical place in which you had no intention of going. And you're going to wind up losing your case because he's going to lead you through his logical conclusion on why his client is right and you're wrong. When a lawyer asks you a simple question, beware. And start thinking about where you want this line of questioning to go and not where he wants it to go. All right. That's not legal advice because I'm not practiced to pra to pra I'm not licensed to practice law in the state of Texas, okay? But I'm just telling you, this lawyer is not seeking truth. This lawyer in verse 25 is putting Jesus to the test. This lawyer is going to do one of two things. He is either going to, A, try to trap Jesus in his own words and thus discredit Jesus, or two, he is going to try to justify himself by finding a loophole in which he can comfort himself in having known that he has fulfilled this law that is in the scriptures. So he's either going to try to discredit Jesus, put Jesus on trial and, and convict him and rule him unconstitutional, or he's going to try to figure out how he's actually meeting, the, the, he's going to find a loophole. And so that's what this lawyer is trying to do. And so the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life, becomes a setup question. It's a typical lawyer trick. But you can't get Jesus like this. Because Jesus knows the lawyer tricks. Okay, Jesus knows how the human heart works. He knows what this lawyer is trying to do. He knows this lawyer's heart. He knows this lawyer's thoughts. And so Jesus does like this ultimate move where he turns the table. 
Now instead of the lawyer asking Jesus the simple setup questions, Jesus is now asking the lawyer simple setup questions, and this lawyer is now falling for his own tricks. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Yeah. And, that's, and that's like, out of all the things that Jesus did, this is like the most unremarkable, but it's still amazing. I mean, how do, how do, you, not, how do you not love a guy like this? Jesus flips the table and asks the lawyer, what's the scripture say? It's a simple setup question. The lawyer, I mean, he spits it right out. You know, I mean, there's lots of things written in the scripture, but the two main rules are, there they are. And Jesus goes, go and do that. Now, the lawyer's got to make the case that he's done this. And by the way, this is, this is Pharisaical religion 101 is to convince yourself somehow that you have kept the law. And if you have not kept the law, you've got to find the loophole that will justify you having not kept it in that case unless you actually did keep it. Brother Jim and I briefly discussed the book Mere Christianity this morning. No, we didn't. You mentioned that you read part of it. And I mentioned, I didn't mention it, but I read part of it. And I didn't finish it, and Brother Jim didn't finish it. Um, And that's neither here nor there. But the book Mere Christianity opens up with a question. And the question is, why do men quarrel why do men quarrel why do we argue with each other why do we fight and the premise of the book which becomes the premise of christianity because what he's leading us to is is the idea that there is a divine law given and that we have violated the law therefore we need redemption from the law from the from the consequence of violating the law that's what the gospel is all about at least i think that's where he was going i didn't get that far but i think that if i were writing that book that's the direction i would have gone but he, his answer is that there is a divine law given. He calls it a natural law, but it's a divine law. That we all have a certain morality that is written in our hearts, and that's Romans chapter 2. And when we quarrel, we quarrel not because you violated it, and I'm upset at you for violating it. We're quarreling because you violated it. I'm telling you you violated it, and you're disagreeing with the fact that you violated it because in your certain, certain circumstance, your actions were justifiable under the divine law. And that's why we argue. And so this is what this lawyer is going to do. He's going to quarrel with Jesus. Not a good idea to try to justify how he has actually done this. And religion, pharisaical religion is, I haven't sinned since 1988. But Leland, you said a cuss word. That's not really a sin because so and so and so and so and so and so. You see, now I can explain away my transgressions. I can explain away my flaws. I can explain away how I don't quite meet your interpretation of the law, but but I've met it. I have stayed sin-free. And there are generations of people who believe they have done this. And the Pharisees back in Jesus' day, they believe that they kept the law. And this lawyer is going to try to make the case why he has kept the law. And so he asked the question. Lawyer is trying to get the line of questioning back under his control now. And he says, well, who is my neighbor? Define neighbor, Jesus. Because if that definition of neighbor comes back, the lawyer can convince himself that he's done all this. So Jesus is going to take this conversation to a place he knows, not only because of his divine nature, but also if you knew Pharisees and Jews and Jewish lawyers back in the Bible days, he would have never been a neighbor to a Samaritan. So... Jesus takes it that direction. He tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And so we're going to learn a few things from this. We're going to see, first of all, what we need to do to inherit eternal life. I mean, if we skip that, we've missed the point of the scriptures altogether. Secondly, we're going to learn what it means to be a neighbor. 
And finally, we're going to learn to see who our neighbors really are. So let's talk about what we must do to inherit eternal life. The lawyer's answer to the question posed by Jesus. He says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, uh, what does the scripture say? What's written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your strength and all of your mind and, and your neighbor as yourself. And so this, these are the two great commandments. In another passage, um, a lawyer comes to Jesus and asks him, what are the two great commandments? And Jesus tells him this. And so this lawyer is telling, is telling Jesus the two great commandments. And Jesus agrees. He goes, go and do that. Go and do that. Um, but let's look at this. What do I do to inherit eternal life? G and uh, Jesus says, what does the law say? The lawyer gives it. What are we supposed to do? To inherit eternal life, what are we supposed to do according to this exchange? We are to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Mm -hmm. To love God with all that you are. Mm -hmm. Also, we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. Amen. Wait a minute. Where's the asking Jesus into your heart and the believing in Jesus and the, the gospel? Where is that in all that? Listen, you love Jesus with all that you are. You love God with all that you are. And you love your neighbor as yourself. That's indicative of a life that is being lived by faith. Mm -hmm. Because the love that God is calling us to is not something that is normal to humanity. This is a spiritual trait. This is a spiritual gift. To love God with all your heart, soul, and strength and mind. To love, we're talking about agape love. We're talking about the love that places the needs of the other person before themselves. Do we place God first on our list of priorities? Is God number one in our life? Okay, is our number one thing to do what God wants us to do and to honor and glorify God? Do we place God ahead of our own selves and ahead of our own needs? Are we, you know, are we looking for what we can do for God, what needs to happen for God, how we can glorify God, how can we advance his kingdom, how can we spread his gospel, how can we love him, how can we honor him, how can we give back to him after this amazing salvation that he has given us. Do we think about God in that direction? Do we love God in that way? Do we agape love God? Or are we trying to see what we can get out of God? Because I'll tell you, a lot of my life was spent trying to get things out of God. I told y'all the story about when I was in high school, and I wanted to go to a homecoming dance with this one particular girl, and she said, I'll pray about it. And so I was going to be really good that weekend, and I went to morning and evening services that weekend, because I knew if I was good to God, God would be good to me, and he would tell her to go out on a date with me. And you know what God told her? At least this is what she told me. I had no reason to not believe her because I knew what kind of guy I was. She said, Monday morning, she goes, ah, God's not leading me toward you. He's actually leading me in the opposite direction. So it's bad enough when a girl tells you she won't go to homecoming. But when a girl tells you that God told her not to go to homecoming, I mean, that stings. I mean, that stings. Okay? But what was I doing that weekend? If, if I give God Sunday morning, God will give me homecoming dance. All right? I'm looking for what I can get out of God. Is that loving God? That's not loving God. That's trying to manipulate a relationship. Do we place God first? Are we willing to give to God? If God gave his only begotten son, what is it in our lives that we're not willing to give back to him? What are we not willing to give up? And I think a lot of people today, they are looking for what God can do for them. I want God to do this for me. I want God to do that for me. I don't want to give this up. I would go to the mission field, but I don't want to leave this. I don't want to leave this behind. I've got a pretty good thing happening here. We don't want to give things up for God. We don't want to make those sacrifices for God. God does not call us 
to use a bonanza term, he doesn't call us necessarily to sell the Ponderosa. But we also need to remember the Ponderosa is his. And that God comes be before the Ponderosa. That's, that's what we've got to understand. Do we love God? To love with all your heart, holding nothing back. To love with all your heart, wanting what God wants. Do we want what God wants? What does God want? What does God want? He wants redemption, Amen. salvation, repentance. What does the Bible tell us in 1 Timothy chapter 2? That the Lord is not willing that any should perish. We need to be praying for those who are in higher... That was actually the context of that verse, was praying for those in higher offices, for kings and those who were set in authority. Kings and those set in authority were not necessarily good guys back in the Bible times. They could be oppressors. They could be persecutors of the Christian faith in many cases, okay? We, we look at our political situation. We look at people that get elected that we think have no business being anywhere near public office. And, you know, we just wish that, you know, they wouldn't be there. Maybe God could take them out somehow. And what God is telling us to do is you need to pray for him because God is not willing that any should perish. And God wants to save Donald Trump. Maybe he already did. I don't know. I'm not going to try to judge his spirituality. God wants to save Joe Biden if he hasn't saved him already. God wants to save AOC if he hasn't saved her already. We should be praying. Amen. We should be praying because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to a knowledge of the truth, that all should come to repentance, that all should be saved. That's what God wants. Amen. And in the meantime, we're praying that we're just able to live our lives peaceably in all godliness. That's what we're praying for. That's all that we are looking for. That's what God wants. That's what we should want. To love with all your soul, giving all of yourself to the Lord. To love with all your strength, doing as much as you are able to. To love with all your mind. This is what you think about. Your thoughts are on him. Your thoughts are on his will. Your thoughts are on what matters and the things that matter, the things that are true, the things that are honorable, the things that are good, the things that are pure that we talked about briefly in Philippians chapter 4 this morning. To think on these things, to love him with all your mind and not to be thinking about what you're mad about, what you're going to get revenge on, what you're going to seek vengeance for, what, what God should do vengeance on your behalf for, or what you want to get out of life in terms of what kind of car and what kind of house and what kind of career and what kind of social standing and, and what have you done for me lately? Instead of thinking like that, we need to be thinking about what God wants us to think about. Yes. And this requires true faith. Yes. This is not something you can gin up. This is not something you can build up within yourself. This is the effect of knowing who God is, yes. trusting God, loving God. I'm not always there. Some days I am very much in the flesh. Some days I'm very much thinking about the problems of this world. Sometimes I'm failing to do what I taught about this morning in Philippians chapter 4 to think on the good things. Sometimes I'm not there. But what I am there is because I'm remembering who God is and what he has done for me. Love requires true faith and true faith is required for salvation. Amen. All too often we think of faith as being casual. It's, it's acceptance. It's un, Yeah, I know Jesus did that for me and I accept that. But true faith is more than that. It transforms how you think. It transforms how you feel. It transforms how you serve the Lord. So that's loving God. Yes. Then to love our neighbor as ourself. That's to agape your neighbor. Agape your neighbor. Put your neighbor's needs ahead of your own. 
Philippians 2, 4, let, us, let each of you look not only on his own interest, but also on the interest of others. Amen. Look not only on your own things, but also on the things of others. This is the mentality, by the way, that led Jesus to the cross, that led Jesus to carry out the gospel. Because Jesus didn't just look on his own things. He looked on our things. He looked at our need. He looked at what, what, what would be good for us. And he came down out of the glories of heaven, lived a fairly uncomfortable life on earth, and then died in the most vicious, horrible way possible while enduring the wrath of God at the same time. Why did he do that? Because he looked not only on his things, but also on the things of others. He looked not only on his own interests, but he looked on our interests as well. And that's the premise of the presenta presentation of the gospel in Philippians chapter 2. This means to elevate your love for your neighbor to the degree that you love yourself. Mm -hmm. You think about neighbors and neighborhoods, and you think about the guy that lives in the house next to you, and y'all both have an interest in that property line. Where is it? And I want it here. He wants it there. There's a disagreement about where the fence is. We're not just looking out for our own interest there. We're looking out for his interest too. When his dog gets out of the yard, it, it's our problem too. When our dog gets out of the yard, hopefully it's his problem too. Hopefully he helps us with it. You know, it's, that, that's just a simple thing. We have a really good relationship with our neighbors. When each of us are out of town, we're, the others are looking over their property and making sure that nobody shows up there that shouldn't be showing up there. These are very small illustrations of what we're talking about here. To look after the well-being of the other more than you look after the well-being of yourself. To agape love your neighbor. That's what Jesus did for us. Mm -hmm. And so this is what gets the Pharisee. This is what gets the lawyer. Because he thinks he's loved God. He hasn't. His, his lips speaks the words, but his heart's far from God. But deep down in this lawyer's heart, he knows that he might be on the bubble when it comes to the neighbor. So he's going to try to, the Bible tells us that he tries to justify himself here by asking the question, who is my neighbor? Yes. And one of the interesting thing is, before Jesus tells us who our neighbor is, he tells us what it means to be a neighbor. Yes. This is where you get the Good Samaritan story. <coughs> Jesus presented two individuals who in any other setting would be the good guys. Mm -hmm. In any other setting, the priest and the Levite would be considered neighbors to the lawyer. But in this story, they become the bad guys, aside from the robbers. They become the bad guys. In this story, it's the Samaritan mm -hmm. who showed mercy. And when Jesus asks him, he tells a story the priest walks by and he sees the wounded Jew laying on the road and he crosses to the other side. Why did the priest do that? Because the priest is concerned about getting the man's blood and his filth on him. He can't, I mean, he's a priest. He has to be clean. He has to be above reproach. He, he, he can't get down in the dirt with this guy. I'm sorry, buddy. I can't do it. And that's contemporary with modern religion that is too concerned with its personal righteousness, its personal holiness, to reach out into the lives of sinners and bring them the light of the gospel. <sighs> we talked about VeggieTales this morning. I don't know if you've ever seen this episode, 
But the priest and the Levite wind up doing a little song and dance about how they're too busy to, to help the guy. The Levite comes along. And the Levite does the same thing. He crosses over to the other side of the road. Now, the Levite's not under the same cleanliness requirements of the priest. So I have no idea if he just didn't really want to mess with it that day. If maybe he was late for an appointment. You know, maybe he had already worked too much that day. He's too busy. I don't know. Anything I tell you about that, I'm, I'm guessing on. But they didn't help. They're not the neighbors. Jesus says to the priest, and this is a man who is supposed to bring people into the presence of the Lord. Amen. Goes by the Levite. His job is to keep the temple operational, keep the temple ready for ministry. He passes, and these, are, and these were kind of thought of as spiritual people. He passes him by. The Samaritan. The Samaritan. They hate it. The Jews called Samaritans dogs. They wouldn't even pass through their country. Some of that's because they hated the Samaritans. Some of that's because the Samaritans hated the Jews and would rough them up too. I mean, it's a mutually... It's a mutually fric frictional situation. They don't like each other. But the Samaritan comes along and he helps this wounded Jew. And Jesus asks him the question. He says, which one of these guys was a neighbor to the wounded man? And the lawyer goes, well, the one who showed him mercy. So even the lawyer has to admit that it was the good Samaritan who was the neighbor. And it's interesting because what the lawyer here has learned is not who his neighbor is that he's supposed to love. But what he is learning here is what it means to be a neighbor in the first place. And that's the first thing that Jesus answers. And from this we learn that to have neighbors to love, we first have to be a neighbor. Amen. And being a neighbor is not about where you live. It's not about whose property adjoins your property. That's not what it means to be a neighbor. A neighbor is not about who is like you, your ethnicity. A neighbor is not about who thinks like you in terms of politics or worldview or, or even religious and religion. It's not about who thinks like you. Being a neighbor is about having mercy and compassion on others. And this is something we're commanded to do. In verse 37, Jesus says, he's talking to the lawyer, but we take it by him telling the lawyer this. We can apply this to ourselves as well. He says, you go and do likewise. Jesus wants us to be neighbors. Yes. To have mercy. To have compassion. Mm -hmm. And when we're talking about mercy and compassion, all of this is in light of the gospel. Yes. We can't feed all the hungry. I want to. I want to. If we could end hunger in Brownwood and Early just by having Brother, Brother Frank write a check... I'd call for a motion. I'd, make a, you know, I'd entertain a motion. Brother Frank, write the check to end hunger in Brown County. We don't have the money. Yeah. And if we did, they're going to be hungry again tomorrow. Yeah. You know, I look at, man, I look, Central America's bothering me right now. You know, everybody's talking about the crisis at the border. The crisis in Central America is what's driving the crisis at the border. Yeah. And, it, it, and, and, and the, the, the problem with the way we're thinking about this is we're thinking about the border without thinking about the root cause which is happening back in Central America. And we're not addressing Central America, so we're going to have a crisis at the border. I don't care what President Biden says, I don't care what President Trump said, and I don't care what the next president is going to say. You, you could pull the greatest president out of the history of our country, put him back in office. I'm not naming him, I'm letting your imagination put him in there. Um, you can put the greatest president from the history of our country back into the, resurrect and put him back in the White House, and, and he's not, he's not going to be able to make a difference if we don't address what's happening in Central America. Mm 
And that's burdening me. If we could go to Central America and we could create jobs in Central America, we could build schools in Central America, we could build churches in Central America, and all we have to do to make all this happen is ask Brother Frank to write the check. I mean, I probably wouldn't even have to ask for that motion. Y'all would probably make the motion and vote unanimously, and I'm sitting here saying, wait, whoa, what did we just do? All right? We talk about being compassionate. And we want to. We want to do these things. But our compassion has to be gospel-focused. It has to come out of the gospel. It has to come. What we're doing is we're treating the disease and we're allowing the treatment of the disease to handle the symptoms. You get the gospel to the people. And that will begin to have an effect on the other areas. That doesn't mean it becomes a utopian society. But what it means is you've had real, lasting, impactful change in the areas where you've got the gospel. And Jesus wants us to be a neighbor. Yes. So yeah, the cars broke down on the side of the road and you feel led to pull over and help the man change his tire. That's being a good neighbor. Like the Samaritan did where he picks the guy up and takes him into town and tends to his wounds in the, in the end. That's being a good Samaritan. That's being a neighbor. But he also wants us carrying the gospel out as we do this. That's being a neighbor. So the the lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? First thing Jesus does is tells him how to be a neighbor. We need to learn to be neighbors. Secondly, he reminds us who our neighbors are. For the Samaritan, his neighbor was the wounded Jew. And this is somebody that, I mean, if the Jew had seen the Samaritan, the Jew probably would have left the Samaritan dying in the ditch. That's That's not a factor in the Samaritan's decision. He ministers to the guy anyway. He's a neighbor. And from this we learn that people are our neighbors regardless of nationality, regardless of political affiliation, regardless of racial differences, regardless of worldviews, regardless of what brand of car we drive. The Jew needed compassion from the Samaritan. Likewise, those who need compassion and mercy from us those who need the gospel from us are our neighbors. And it has nothing to do with where they live. It has nothing to do with political or ideological affiliation. No, nothing to do with social status or socioeconomic status. In fact, our neighbors, the people who need our mercy and our compassion and our gospel, may very well even be our own enemies. Enemies. Enemies of our cause. If they need mercy, compassion, and the gospel, they are our neighbor. They are our neighbor. Who are some neighbors you can think of today? Who are some neighbors you can think of? We are to love them. Yes. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, it came up as a verse of the day if you've got the Bible app. Um, the, the U version. It came up this week and spoke to me a little bit. It says, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith. If we can't love our brothers and sisters, we can't love anybody else. As we have opportunity, as we have opportunity, ability, a chance, we see a need Let us meet that need. You see a gospel need. Let's meet the gospel need. 
You say, well, the, you know, those of the household of faith don't have the gospel needs. Well, sometimes they do. They may already be saved, but they need to be reminded. Look at how often P Paul reminds us of the gospel in his, in his letters. And he was writing those to save people. There's, there is something to be said about constantly reteaching yourself the gospel. But let us be compassionate and good neighbors to those who are without as well. Those who are not Christians, those who are the unchurched. Because they're not going to come up and tell us, hey, I'm hurting. They're not going to come up and share their burdens with you. They're afraid, as a lot of Christians are, that if they share their weaknesses and they share their burdens and they share what's on their heart, then they're making themselves vulnerable and we'll take that vulnerability and we'll use it against them. People are afraid of that. But we see it. We know it's there. They need our mercy and our compassion and our gospel. Yes. Let's be good neighbors. Amen. Let's be good neighbors. Let us stand.